what's the role of the state in capitalism and what's the role of business? And how do you make sure that profitability is going to go in a direction that benefits everybody? In fact, one could say very simply, the legitimacy of capitalism depends on its capacity to make the greed of some benefit the many. That's the legitimacy of capitalism. That doesn't define capitalism, but it says, when is it possible to say that capitalism is a decent system? It's when the greed of the few benefits the many. This is Sachin. And this is Eric. Welcome to Luminary, kitchen table style conversations with some of the world's brightest minds exploring boundaries of human knowledge. Join us on a pursuit to transmit intuition and ideas. Find us at luminary.fm or on Twitter at luminaryfm. We would love to hear from you. Why are technology and software an integral part of change and shaping the world around us? We seek to dissect this question in the second season of Luminary. It's arguably at the heart of defining our trajectory as a civilization. Through a vast series of topics, our ambition is to weave a narrative incorporating a social, technical, historical, and philosophical lens, with contributions from titans of technology, theorists, builders, and tinkerers alike. If you have ideas, feedback, or simply suggestions for who to talk with, drop us a line on Twitter. The spirit of this journey is collaborative and community-oriented. Our guest today is Carlota Perez, a preeminent multidisciplinarian, scholar, and author. Carlota studies the nature of technological change and economic systems, and the lessons provided by the history of technological revolutions. Her book, Technological Revolutions and Financial Capital, is a landmark contribution to the study of technological innovation and change. She has received numerous awards and accolades, including most recently an honorary doctorate by Utrecht University in the Netherlands. Our conversation with Carlotta centers around her framework for studying technological change and the adoption of digital technologies. We discuss the ideas behind technology cycles, the role of capitalism in influencing change, the difference between the current digital paradigm and prior technology revolutions, the role government can play in accelerating the adoption of digital technologies, and get a preview of her upcoming book, which features the role of governments in shaping technological revolutions. Carlotta, welcome. It's just such an honor to have you with us. Maybe we'll start off with this. What sparked your interest in technology and economic systems? Okay, the first thing you should know is that I am a Venezuelan, and that means coming from an oil-producing country. So I had thought I wanted to be, I'm an interdisciplinarian, actually. I'm not an economist. I've been fighting this idea that I'm an economist because, of course, I have become an economist through my research, but I am originally 50% economist and 50% everything else. So I'm a big picture person. I look at all the aspects, not just the strict economic things. But that was originally because I wanted to be a policymaker. I actually saw myself as somebody who would work in government or outside government, not becoming somebody in office, but just 
work in political change, being from a developing country and worried about our backwardness, I understood that technology was very important. So I studied economics, I studied technology, I was centered on technology in every single aspect. This is how I came to the point where the oil shock happened. And when I say oil shock, I'm not just talking about the shock to the developed world that got the hit and to the developing world that got an even bigger hit. I'm talking about the shock to us when we increased a percent, well, half a percent, the royalties, immediately production would go down in Venezuela and up somewhere else, and we would get less money than we got when we had less royalty. So I tell you, cents, I'm talking about cents. And suddenly we tripled the prices. By the way, it was a Venezuelan who organized OPEC, got the Arabs to agree to have this organization we would all together so they wouldn't do this to us, two or three cents. And suddenly from $2 to $7.50 in one season, that's not possible. How could that happen? No invasion, no retaliation, nothing. Uh -huh. You know what happened? Within months, the North Sea was producing oil, expensive oil, and Alaska was producing oil. And this was not temporary. OPEC was able to do that because it was necessary for the oil companies and also for the U.S. competing with Germany and Japan. So that's why, even though all this fake news, OPEC, horrible, da 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 da, da went on, in fact, it was necessary. So when we understood this, then the idea, I was given the task of studying I was at that time do, uh, working in a postgraduate thing in university. The structural causes of the energy crisis. What was behind it? Why, why did it happen? Why was it necessary? Not just because the Arabs and the North Sea and all this thing. There must have been something else. At least we suspect it. In fact, I found out as soon as I started doing research that Everything was oil. Plastics was oil. Aluminum was oil. Copper was oil. Steel was oil. Automobiles were oil. Electricity was oil. Goodness me, what's going to happen now? Everything was so expensive now. But everything, not just oil, because everything was oil dependent. So as soon as I understood this, then finding out what was happening. I found this Fortune article in 1974, actually, which was called Too Cheap to Worry About. And what they were saying was that there was an enormous lot of technologies that could have been used by the very, by the industries that used most energy, but they didn't buy them. Why? They were asked, too cheap. We couldn't bother. Labor was expensive. Oil was cheap. So I went on. I said, so what's going to happen? Now that everything is expensive, is that going to make inflation impossible? What's going to happen? Well, 
couple of years later, I get this Business Week article where they report the smart machine revolution, talking about microelectronics, cheap microelectronics. Wow, this is what it is. Cheap microelectronics is going to replace cheap oil as the determining force in technology. This is a big thing. This is going to change our fate, Venezuela as an exporter. We weren't counting how long it was going to last, but anyway, it was important. We better understand this thing. So I discovered Kondratiev, long waves, related to technology. I discovered Schumpeter, and I decided, no, I better write this up. I'm going to have to, I had to read the three, the four big books, Schumpeter's long cycles, all these things. So I went, I did a master's. I came to that conclusion. I actually developed a theory which had to do with technological revolutions. And my main idea was that you actually had to change the system. You had to change the conditions, the context, because what you had was like a mismatch between the way that the state was organized in order to make a particular revolution diffuse properly and the way it had to do with a different revolution. So I came back to Venezuela. I proposed to set up a directory of technological development in the Ministry of Industry, even though I had nothing to do with the political party, but they accepted, they were interested. I became that. And I started working on that, but I couldn't really convince them of the changes that were going to happen. We were all under protection. It was the world of import substitution. There was all industry was protected. I said, they're going to be killed like cockroaches. Nobody's going to survive. This is the enormous change coming. They didn't get it. So I invited the sort of holy grail of innovation and change and all that, which was Chris Freeman and Sproog, the Science Policy Research Unit in Britain. They came, they gave lots of talks. They didn't really convince the ministers, but they convinced me to come to Sproog and give, first of all, to give a conference. And soon they convinced me that I should become an academic. <laughs> so. Rest is history. Rest is history. That's the history. So to this day, (laughs) understanding technological revolution has been my passion, my inexhaustible passion, because it's an enormous thing. So that's how I'm here. And that's how I'm now writing the book I will talk about later, I hope. This lends very well into a you are an interdisciplinarian which is something we really love and second to what you mentioned about the framework or the thesis which you have put forward what is at the heart of the of that thesis or framework for exploring technological change okay well the first thing is that i am what they call a new schumpeterian And being a new Schumpeterian means that at least you accept four great ideas that he had. 
One was that innovation is what drives capitalism, what drives progress. Two, that entrepreneurs carry innovation. So it's a particular type of beast. It isn't just like a manager, it's something else. That finance makes it possible. And that all that results in the cyclical nature of capitalism. So those are the four great ideas. But he had two blind spots. He had one blind spot on the nature of innovation itself. He just saw like innovation is innovation. He didn't realize that there were revolutionary innovations, incremental innovations, that there was a whole S-curve things. And that's what Sproul developed and various other, many other innovation scholars in the world started studying the nature of innovation, which he never studied. But the other thing, much, much worse, which was his real limping side, is that he didn't understand the role of the state. In fact, he wanted the state out of the way. He really believed in the self-regulating markets, and he really believed that equilibrium was automatic, that the market would naturally go towards equilibrium, and that the cyclical nature was out of equilibrium, back to equilibrium, out of equilibrium, back to equilibrium, in a short term, in short cycles, or in long terms, long waves because he did accept that there was such a thing as long waves, but it was this idea of out and in and out and in of equilibrium by the market with no intervention. And he really wanted the state out of the way. He only recognized the state should come in when you have something as serious as the 1930s, you know, really deep depression. So that's where I stepped in. Because my whole conviction from the very beginning is that the role of the state was crucial because innovation and entrepreneurship and all these cyclical things had to be somehow counterbalanced by something. And what was that? That was the difficult thing. So I came, of course, to conclusions that technological Change is not continuous. It goes by successive technological revolutions. That progress is therefore not continuous. And that each technological revolution is made up of a complex set of technologies that complement and strengthen each other. Usually, they have what I call a key factor, which other people call a general purpose technology, but that's a bit complicated because the key factor is like a material, it's like energy. It has been coal, steel, oil, and now microelectronics. It's not so clear. There is also an infrastructure and that again, there has been railways, the steamships, of course, railways and telegraphs, then transcontinental telegraph, transoceanic telegraph, transcontinental railways, and all these things, you know, the infrastructure that changes the space of the market that you can cover. And of course, now the internet, it also includes a set of core technologies. In this case, we have computers, mobile phones, software, and so on. But before it was the automobile, all the electrical appliances, the whole world of 
elect electricity really as one of the infrastructures, also the roads, the road system and the and airways as infrastructure before and so on. We can go back. Each revolution has a big set of core technologies, key factor infrastructure, which of course means that when people say that crypto is a technological revolution, it sounds to me so ridiculous. They don't understand the complexity of what we're talking about. So anyway, but the most important thing is not just the structure of each revolution. The important thing is that diffusion is not continuous at all. What happens is that in the initial decades, we have created destruction. There's a massive increase in inequality, job destruction, skill destruction, industry destruction, regional destruction. It's really changing everything. So it means there are many victims. And those victims might not be lucky enough to be picked up by the next revolution, by whatever it is that's new. They might actually be put on the side. So what happens is that all this entrepreneurship, all this excitement and all this thing goes into a financial, turns into a financial feast. That financial feast is like a frenzy, is a boom. And as a boom and as a bubble, it collapses. It can collapse once or twice or three times, but the more financialized the economy, the bigger the crashes and the more dangerous they become. Those crashes leave the economy in recession. Of course, during all that time that finance is calling the shots in creative destruction, Finance is becoming stronger and stronger, but also more and more corrupt because it's when you make money out of money and you do nothing but bet, it's like a casino. So you have this huge casino and when it crashes, there should be punishment. There should be actually accountability. This time we haven't had accountability. We have had <laughs> QA, lots of money. <laughs> you need money first. First, the money was given after, because of 9-11, that, that was really, 9-11 did more harm than people believe. 9-11 not only killed a lot of people, not only created the conditions for the Afghanistan war and the Iraq war and all those things that were so painful for so many people and all this thing, but they also made it possible for finance to take over completely when it should have been time for the state to come back, which is the third phase. Because what happens after these crashes is that you have a recession. And because all that time of creative destruction, you had increase in inequality, you had increase in inequality with lots of money moving around. So all that money that, that's moving around makes it a little less painful because there are jobs and things that are maybe badly paid, but something okay happens. But when it crashes, everything disappears. And then it's like, what? Uh, what's his name? Oh, this financial guy who says that when the water goes, you discover who was swimming naked. Or well, what happens is that the economy it. is then you see the horror. And then people get angry and there is resentment and there is protests and there is all this. 
So guess what that means? That means the terrain for populism is ready. So we now have all these populists all over in advanced and backward countries because the whole thing is the same. The world always works more or less globally as one, one big unit in capitalism with differences inside. So you get populism and anger. And then some intelligent people, some intelligent politicians, which we seem to have a very big dearth of now, realize that what they need is to step in and save it by setting up a win-win game between business and society and bringing a golden age. So every technological revolution up to now has brought a mess at the beginning, like the roaring 20s and then the crash of the 30s, or like the Gilded Age with all the rich in the 1880s and then a crash in the 90s and then the progressive era, the Belle Epoque, the good times come after the crash. This win-win game, this golden age has not come because every time we've had a crash, the state has stepped in not to save society, not to save capitalism, but to save finance. So they have put all the QE money 8% of GDP per year went into the coffers of the financial sector. And nobody paid for the horror of the people who lost their homes. Instead of going through, in fact, SDR went through the farmers to pay the banks. It could have been set up a system to examine which mortgages were okay and then the people could have paid the bank with the help of the state. No, the banks got all the money and the people lost their homes. So we've had the bad reaction from the state. We haven't had the reaction that brings golden ages, which every technological revolution up to now has. And if we have a chance, I can explain which are the conditions that could bring a golden age now a global golden age, which would be good for everybody. And that would be wonderful. But we're not moving in that direction, unfortunately. And the framework around reading technological change, which you came up with, why is it that we apply that framework looking back last two and a half centuries? What was it? What was different prior to, let's say, 18th century that this framework would not apply? You mean... Before 1772, because capitalism as such began with the first industrial revolution. In fact, in my current book, where I'm examining each of the revolutions, I call it a proto-revolution. I don't think it was a full revolution. In fact, it's very interesting to discover that the whole notion, uh, Adam Smith's notions of the way you divide your organized work and the division of labor and the whole, all his ideas were applied to government because most of that revolution in England was during the wars with France and Napoleonic War, the Revolutionary War. And so practically the whole time they were at war and they had just lost the American War. So 
they were really worried that they were not competent. So they modernized the state. They picked the younger. He was 23 when he became prime minister. A very young person. And I would call him a government entrepreneur. He actually transformed government into a very modern machine. Everything. He even transformed mail. <laughs> mail, <laughs> which was done with horses and everything, but he made it really, he modernized everything. He modernized arms production. He modernized shipbuilding. And the states, as such, he brought lots of young people in and they changed everything on time and well. But capitalism was just the textile industry and the canals, practically that. Uh, coal and a few other things, but it wasn't really until the second revolution when we get steam power, we get the railways unify the nation into a network and that network allowed finance to become national so you had branches of rather than having the local bank in the local city in the local town or just in london to be for the empire which was already beginning to become a reality so this situation sort of demanded transformations that were supported by the state and supported by a more developed finance. So in fact, from the second revolution onward, you get this pattern. So the real clear pattern is only three revolutions, the second, the third, and the fourth, which is mass production. The third was the first globalization, the more similar to this one, by the way and a little longer also than the other two. Yeah, and taking this a bit further, why does technological change need to be studied at the convergence of technology, economy, and socio-institutional context? Why? Well, because what we do with technology is transform society. And society can just sit there and let technology sort of be poured over at people both the entrepreneurs and the consumers and all the members of society, the politicians, the managers, the educated people, everybody, the workers, they all look at technology as one of the instruments of progress. This is like the central ideology of capitalism is that we have progress. Since progress is not continuous, when you see a lot of technology around and it it's not helping you and it's not creating. It's very strange because at the early years of capitalism, until you have a golden age, you don't really get a general productivity growth. You get productivity in some pockets and you don't get productivity in the rest. So everybody starts saying, you know, there's a very famous thing I've seen computers everywhere, except in the productivity statistics and everybody complaining. And, you know, gross, 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 we want gross. And that, that means productivity and productivity technology. But if you don't change the context, you're not going to get the results because the context, you know what? The way governments operate today is what they used to do before, minus everything Miguel Thatcher and all the others eliminated. So we have less than we had before. It's good that it's not the same because it doesn't work. You cannot use 
the framework that was good for mass production is not good for a global digital economy. So we've got to change it radically. And until that happens, we're not getting productivity growth, general productivity growth, or general good employment growth. We're getting lousy employment growth, just badly paid work that, that just makes people survive, but it creates no future. And one of the big problems, one of the reasons why populism thrives is because people lost their future. Poor people, they don't make such a fuss and they're not populists. In fact, they very rarely are populists, people who were born poor and continue to be poor. The people who become populists are the people who used to be better, who used to have a better future and suddenly it's been stolen from them. And that's the feeling I've been, it's been taken away. My children will be worse off than me. Who's offering me heaven? Who's offering me to get back to where I used to be? Make America great again. What does make America great again mean? Means let the blue collar workers be middle class again. But the blue collar jobs were not middle class. The blue collar jobs, when they got to Asia, became low wage jobs because it wasn't the job. It was the social institutional framework. It was a welfare state. It was the consensus between society and business that they would share the fruits through taxation. Do you know how much the top tax rate was during Eisenhower's time in the 1950s and the beginning of the post-war boom? 91%, like in Sweden, for 10 years, 91%. Of course, hardly anybody paid it because they had all sorts of lawyers. But this is just to tell you, they paid quite a bit, not the 91 because they all, their lots of lawyers made a lot of money making sure that people didn't pay that. But the thing is that this was understood. Business understood something very simple, that if you have dynamic demand, you can produce more, you can increase productivity. They already discovered during the war that they could produce 14 airplanes per day. So this incredible technology that increases productivity at this stage after doing military things can now do consumer things. So the golden age is the golden age of consumerism, the golden age of mass production. And what that meant was that people got salaries that went up with productivity. So if salaries go up with productivity, there is more demand in the street. So you can buy houses, you can have a car at the door, you can have them full of electrical appliances, you can fill the refrigerator with frozen foods, you can fill the cabinets with tin things, you have curtains and clothing made of, text, of plastic textile synthetics, you have the boxes, you have the car, you know, amazing the amount of business that grew out of the possibility of suburbanization, which was the direction in which, two directions actually, that the state gave. One was suburbanization, the other one was the Cold War. So you had military innovation, military production, military profits on one side, and 
consumer-led growth on the other. And that consumer-led growth, it's very important to understand that all the policies that were made to make people be able to have houses, and that means blue-collar workers, so the majority of the population was supposed to own a house, that would have been inconceivable in the 1920s, 1910s. I mean, you could see people in a queue in the 1930s when people were starving and really horrifying, and somebody said, don't worry, in 10 years, those people are going to have a home and are going to have a car at the door and their children are going to go to university. You're mad. Nobody would have believed it. And that's so important to understand the conditions in each of the periods. What actually happens when a technological revolution comes across society and transforms the conditions? And if the state doesn't come in, you have a mess. If the state comes in intelligently and understands what it has to do, you could have a golden age. And that has happened each time. And it hasn't happened yet now. And it's very painful to understand that it's possible and to see that it doesn't happen. Oh, absolutely. So said in inverse, is technical change by revolution, does it have little to do with technological and scientific reason? No. No, it's not because of technology. No, in fact, the funny thing is that science continues partly responding to the technological revolution, partly responding to what the state pushes. Like if now we were to push green, science would go further and further and further into green. We're not pushing it enough. But science has a sort of semi-independence. And it advances in all sorts of directions. And thanks to that, every technological revolution is born decades before, but it's just sitting there in the wings. It's not being used yet. You know why? Because every technological revolution provides a paradigm for enormous productivity increase across the whole economy. And if the state does the right thing, then all those possibilities become synergistic and everybody goes in similar directions. So then you have the proper suppliers, you have the proper prices, you have the proper demand, you have the whole thing coming. So everybody benefits. But when the technology reaches maturity, when you can no longer increase productivity, then you can't increase taxes or wages. And when you can no longer increase your markets and your markets are saturated, you've got to start looking somewhere else or invent things like they did this time, which was plant obsolescence. Get a, ref a refrigerator, which when I was young, lasted 35 years, now lasts five at most. Because that's the whole idea. And in order to increase demand, you couldn't get new people but you could get the same people to buy the same thing again and again and again. And you make a new, you know, every car every year had to have a little thing, a difference. Now it's macho, now it's wonderful. Now it's every car had to have something to 
make people change the car, even though their car was working perfectly. That they did that, then they also did import substitution in Latin America and elsewhere, and that way they increased demand. That was the big problem. And then all those technologies, because computers were invented in the Second World War, and of course, IBM had been thriving for quite a while. It was even already doing transistor computers and beginning to use integrated circuits. There was already the integrated circuit was already coming around. Some analog control instruments were being digitized. So these things were beginning to happen. They were in the wings and then suddenly with a microprocessor, a computer on a chip, cheap chips, and there you go. And then you have computers, mini computers, small computers, Apple coming with a personal computer. What's a personal computer? What do you want to do with a personal computer? What a ridiculous thing. Well, let me tell you, I lived through that. I was big by then. I saw in the 70s people just thinking that a personal computer was a ridiculous gadget. You know, what for? So that's how technologies, but they're all there. They come together when the previous revolution is exhausted. And then they somehow, it's really interesting because it's there. There are two phenomena that happen. One is that finance, that when they see that the old technologies are not going anywhere and they're not making any money, they start looking for something new. And they start funding any crazy thing that's around or the things that were already there but had more promise and they hadn't exploited them enough. And the other thing, of course, that they do is finance what business does, which is go somewhere else to find whatever cheaper, whatever they can get. Cheaper labor, cheaper materials, cheaper energy, cheaper whatever, so that even though they cannot increase productivity technologically, they can increase their profits by reducing their costs and whatever. So finance goes with them and does everything and then and actually funds the other side also funds the ones that are going and funds the ones that are receiving. That's why there are always very serious financial crises 20, 15, 20 years later because they lend whatever in whichever way. And this time they had all the oil money to lend. So that's why the crises were so deep this time. Maybe fleshing out this line of inquiry a bit further. In your book, Carlotta, you say that technical change by revolution has little to do with technological and scientific reasons. So I want to make sure we understand what you mean by that. What I mean is that technological revolutions become the paradigm, the logic, the way of doing something as long as it's still profitable, as long as you're still innovating, as long as you're still increasing productivity, as long as you're still growing. When you start meeting limits, then you need new things. You absolutely need something else. Now, people are so tied 
to their own, to, to this vision that has made them successful. Don't forget that all the heads of all the big companies have made their success on top of the existing paradigm. So this time we have all those people that were the heads of the steel companies, of the car companies, of the electrical companies, of the refrigerator companies, General Electric, all these guys. They all had made their, their success on the basis of using the logic of mass production. The logic of mass production also had to do with using, you know, turning everything into electrical things. The last ones were the electric toothbrush and the electric can opener. You get to the point where you've electrified every imaginable thing. So now you need a can opener that's electrical. So when you get to such ridiculous ends, then it's obvious, first of all, that they last a very short time. You know, they come to the market and within two years, they, they become commodities and they're worthless. They could be produced by anybody. At that point, all the scientific knowledge that was already there, all the advanced technologies, which didn't totally belong to the paradigm. Because if you think, you think of computers, IBM was making computers, which were relatively rare. I mean, big companies and governments use these big things, which they rented. They rented as a service, which was very rare because possession was the nature of mass production. That was the whole idea. You had to have more and more and more and more things, 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 things. You had to turn services into products. You don't wash your clothes. You put them in a machine that does it for you. You don't whip your cream. You put it in a machine that whips it for you and so on. The electrical transformation of services into products, which by the way, these technologies do the opposite. They turn products into services. That's what they've been doing with film. That's what they've been doing with music. They've been doing, but we need to do it in many, many more aspects. But anyway, going back to our, to the argument about why it has, well, not nothing to do with science, but it is not science that decides when to make the revolution. It's finance. And it's entrepreneurs that decide when to go ahead, articulating lots of things that are around since finance is now willing to fund them, which it wasn't before, by the way. They couldn't find anything yeah. when they made the first microprocessors. They were for military purposes and for earphones. That was the only personal use they could find in a world where consumerism was the thing. What can a consumer do with a microprocessor? And then, of course, we started a little later with a calculator. So you could, instead of, because most people didn't know how to use a slide rule. So you, you had this wonderful calculator. Otherwise, you did it by hand. These things, these little things happening, they were all there. <laughs> they come together as a revolution when First of all, it's obvious that the old technologies are finished. And when finance comes in and picks them all up, and when entrepreneurs see, wow, yes, of course I can do things. 
and they start thinking. And all young people who can imagine a different a different use, a different world. It was so difficult for older people to understand the advantages of those new things. You're reading your book, it's clear that capitalism has an instrumental role in your thesis. And first, before we get to the question, what is your 20-second definition <laughs> of capitalism? You want it in 20 seconds. Yes. Well, maybe to define capitalism, you could think of it as a system based on, as Schumpeter would have said, based on innovation, based on profit-seeking, and not necessarily in general progress. General progress is almost an accident of this combination of innovators and ambitious people trying to become rich, then they do it. And by accident, they actually generate progress for everybody. That's not their purpose. And one of the things that the state has to do as representative of society, especially in democratic societies, but not necessarily because the Chinese are also doing it and they're not a democratic society. What the state has to do is to take all those possibilities, all these very ambitious, profit-seeking people and make the conditions such that if they do what's good for everybody, they'll be more profitable. So right now, the, what the state would have to do is to make it more profitable to invest in the green transition than to invest in the old stuff. Yeah, And okay. you do that by changing all sorts of things. So capitalism is a system where society has a representative core that makes sure that all these mad people looking for profit will end up benefiting everybody. That's what capitalism is, but it loses track for a while. While, while the technological revolution is being installed, then it suffers big protests, mass disorder, violence, populism, and all that. You know, when you think of it, Hitler and Stalin, they were the equivalent of today's populists. Hitler blamed the Jews, Stalin blamed the capitalists, and lots of people followed them. Lots of people really thought that they would give them heaven. And now we're having these mad people also offering heaven that they cannot deliver. But if enough intelligent, competent, and well-meaning people realize this in the political world, they could transform this into a golden age, as has happened before. So mm -hmm. the whole problem is that capitalism depends on having enough people in this central sort of represent, representation of society that will take it in the good direction. But in some places, it's not a democratic representation. It can be a dictator. It can be a political party like the Communist Party in China. It can be Hitler who was more successful than anybody for quite a few years while everybody else was in recession. 
But you're saying the nature of capitalism is making money off of money, a profit seeking. No, 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 not out of money. No, no, out of technology. The thing is that once you have the technology, some people want to make money out of money and I they see. derail the system. When finance goes off track and becomes a casino, that's when the system becomes, is in danger, in real danger. What happened to, in the third revolution, just to give you a historical example, the US and Germany overtook Britain. And what Britain did was to have the aristocrats and the financial world turn towards the empire and turn their back on the British economy. The British economy went downhill. It never even had a golden age. It actually had its welfare state later than anybody else. Germany had begun already in the 1880s. The whole of Europe was doing it in the early beginning of the century. The US, the UK only did it in about 1913, just before the war. They actually, and that's because finance was calling the shots together with the aristocrats who became financialized and industry in Britain decayed completely. They were just doing the same textile, the same things from the second revolution. They were not doing the electrical things, the big mechanical things, the big chemical things that the Germans were doing and that the Americans were doing. Anything you would add at all in terms of the relationship between capitalism and change? You've already shared quite a few thoughts on this, but anything you'd add at all? I think I just accept that capitalism exists. The important thing is what's the role of the state? That's the real thing. What's the role of the state in capitalism? And what's the role of business? And how do you make sure that profitability is going to go in a direction that benefits everybody? In fact, one could say very simply, the legitimacy of capitalism depends on its capacity to make the greed of some benefit the many. That's the legitimacy of capitalism. That doesn't define capitalism, but it says, when is it possible to say that capitalism is a decent system? It's when the greed of the few benefits the many. And that's actually a wonderful way to close that question. And one last question in this theme, Carlotta, before we move to the role of governments in creating technological revolution. How is the current information and communication technological revolution, which is driven by microelectronics, compared to the prior technological revolutions? First of all, it's the first one that instead of replacing manual labor, it's replace, replacing mental labor. That makes it very different. It has a lot of consequences that are very important. That's one big difference. The second difference is that in contrast with previous revolutions, instead of beginning with the infrastructure, it began with the microprocessor, computers, and software. And 24 years later, it had its infrastructure. So the actual structure of the revolution didn't begin from the beginning. <laughs> it began after 24 years. So 
the first, everybody was working on analog, satellite, uh, communications, regular telephones, trying to do the job that would be done digitally later and so on, transformation of things. So it was very late. The second thing, of course, is that no time in history has there been anything as enormous as opening up the whole of the Soviet Union and the whole of China to capitalism. So this was billions of people who could now work and consume, eventually consume, at first just work for nothing, 10-hour days, six days a week, maybe seven days a week, very, very low wages in cents, wages in cents against wages in uh, $10. I mean, <laughs> it's just so absurd. And to have this enormous amount of people, Marx called it the reserve army of labor. You had the system, and if you could find new people that were very poor and that were willing to work for a little, that was the reserve army of labor. Well, this was the reserve army of labor, which was like four times more, four or five times more people than there had been originally. So it's an amazing thing. So that, that made the difference, not because the revolution was different, but because the context changed radically. And another thing that happened, which is very interesting, I and mean, these are all parts of what I'm now writing, is that when the mass production revolution was mature in the US and Europe, Japan rejuvenated it. Japan took the mass production that Ford invented was inside the final factory in the assembly world. What the Japanese did was to make an assembly line that went from the first supplier to the first consumer. So by doing this just-in-time system, they applied, they rejuvenated mass production, and they were able to make variety, which of course Ford said you can have any color as long as it's black, and you only changed it every year, and it was all complicated. They could change almost every day, participating with the workers participating, doing constant, continuous improvement and total quality and all this thing. They changed it radically. And of course, that's why in the 1980s, people were talking about Japan as number one. Japan became number two, displaced by China later. But then China reinvented it, now incorporating robotics, incorporating computer in every task and so on. So again, rejuvenation of mass production. So mass production and mass consumption and therefore environmental risk has been stretched by the Chinese now. Everybody is looking to imitating the American way of life instead of reinventing lifestyles. You actually every technological revolution has changed lifestyles. You had the Victorian boom, which was the city living, urban living by the bourgeoisie rather than country living by the aristocrats. Then in the Belle Epoque, you had the cosmopolitan way of life, which was in the city. So you had restaurants, theater, writing, posters, museums, exhibitions. It was really this city living 
with an awareness of the whole world because people were traveling all the time because that was the time when in two weeks you could get all the way to South Africa or to Argentina. You had the Suez Canal since the 60s, so you could go to India very quickly and so on. This whole reinvention of mass production allowed the technological revolution to sort of adopt many of the old things. So for instance, we could have invented computers that you didn't have to change the box, you just changed the software. But in fact, what we're doing is throwing out constantly the same as the cars, the same planned obsolescence with the phones, with the laptops, with the computers, with everything. We, we are producing as much rubbish, non-recycling, as the mass production world did when we didn't even know that the world was at risk. That's the other difference. And I think there is another difference, which is not because of the digital revolution. And that is that we are living so much longer. I am now 83. I work seven days a week, 12 months a year. I am not stopping. Fortunately, I'm not taking anybody's job because I work as independent. But Many, many people in politics, in businesses, everywhere are very old and should. I don't know if they should get out, but they definitely should give the young the opportunity. What we now have is a glass ceiling for women and a glass ceiling for the young. Normally, in every other revolution, actually, I told you that the prime minister was 23 of the first revolution. Normally, People, when they got to their 40s, were already CEOs. Now they're in their 40s being entrepreneurs, finding venture capitalists for their projects. Because if you work for a company, you're smashed by all those old people who don't understand anything. If you saw the interview of Zuckerberg in Congress, it was so embarrassing. They didn't know anything. And you can't have the leaders in a time of revolution not understand what in the world is happening. How can you regulate those monsters with all those old people who don't even know how to use Zoom? You need young people very quickly into positions of power and decision-making and innovation within government especially, but also within big companies. Let the young people go up, and they don't. You had Steve Jobs and Bosniak setting up a company and then becoming the heads of this enormous thing. But you don't get, in the companies that have existed from before, you don't get the young people that could transform them. And governments have to modernize. Governments are old-fashioned, bureaucratic, heavy, incompetent, rules-based, completely. And they use, you know what they use computers for? First of all, they have legacy computers that used to be IBM and they kept the software and they still are using that impossible software, which is useless when we have something much better. It should be like Amazon. We should be able to to handle government in a super easy way. 
So we don't. Why? Because the young people are not taking the decisions in government and because the structure of government is the old pyramid. We still have the old things. Carlotta Perez for president. (laughs) No, this is great. I'd like to switch gears and talk about governments and technological (laughs) revolutions. We'll start with what's the role of government in technological revolutions? Although many of my friends will disagree with me, the role of governments in the first decades of technological revolutions is to let finance call the shots, is to get out of the way. But of course, the way they did it this time was brutal. It was criminal. They should have done it. They had to do it because otherwise, as I said, the people in the old paradigm, the successful companies, the big companies are actually conservative, backward, inertial, useless. They, are, they have to be forced into change. And that's what finance does. I won't fund you unless you do what I say. And finance is now working with the new guys. So that has to happen. However, governments have to then take care of the victims. You have to start from the beginning knowing that when you have a technological revolution, you've got to help the victims. So they should have had all sorts of possibilities with big imagination to save the skill destruction, to save people from loss of jobs, to not just let them just suffer the consequences. So that's the first thing that they have to do. The second thing that they have to do is to try to avoid the boom, the big frenzy boom that's going to inevitably collapse from being too bad. So you start coming in early enough. This time they didn't come in at all. So the first crash, which was a 2000 crash, was mainly Silicon Valley and so on. And it could have led to thinking, to rethinking the things, but it didn't. The second crash in 2008 could have led again, but they didn't. So I think we're still waiting for more crashes, but basically, What governments have to do once they realize what their job is, which is to set up a win-win game between business and society and to modernize themselves in order to be able to do it. Because you don't, if you're doing it for a revolution that is global by nature, you cannot avoid it being global. You can have a multipolar world where you have different countries having a bit of the globe within their sphere, that's a possibility. What you cannot do is go back to national governments that protect themselves. You can have protection even, it doesn't matter. But internet is global, container ships are global. And now finance is global because this was a revolution about information and because finance is about information, they have been able to do those horrible synthetic instruments that have been able to make so much money for a few and to make so many poor. So those synthetic instruments, together with the fact that they are now global and being global, they cannot be regulated. They're completely decoupled from the real economy. In fact, 
little venture capitalism is funding the revolution. Finance is not funding the revolution. Finance is funding nothing but finance. It's a gigantic global casino, completely free. If any country dares try to stop finance from its worst things, they just get out. They don't have to stay anywhere. So they are completely autonomous. They are global. And the only way to solve that problem is to set up a global institution, which could very well take the financial transactions tax every time they move their money and use that money to fund the green, the greening of the South, which is indispensable for the planet and indispensable for the North itself. Just like increasing the salaries of the workers created demand for mass production, increasing development in the developing world would create dynamic demand for digital production, for the green transition, and for capital goods, because that's what, you know, consumer goods will never come back to the North. They will come back with robotics, perhaps, but they're going to be made everywhere else, somewhere else where it's cheaper. So the thing is to make sure that the North has some things that will give good jobs, lots of good jobs. And those things are the digital revolution itself, everything that's digital, capital goods, especially green capital goods adapted to conditions, and something else which I would like to tell you a little bit about, which is changing from the possession model to a rental model, rental and maintenance, which would mean that it doesn't matter where the product is made. The importer brings it and the importer owns the products until the moment when they disassemble them, recycle everything at the end. In the meantime, the importer is fully responsible. It's forbidden to throw out any appliance. Everything that's made with materials, you own until it dies. And when it dies, you recycle it. And in the meantime, you rent it, you have maintenance. Every product has to have a chip. Every product, every model has to have all its information on the web so you can 3D print the parts that break down. Also, the diagnosis model also has to be on the web. That's your obligation as a producer. And the importer has to impose that. And then people will rent and they can change. Like we buy books in Amazon. You just, you know, I want a new refrigerator. So you go and see which one you like and you rent it. And that way it's possible for everybody in the world to own a refrigerator, every family. Otherwise, forget it. I want to have everybody have a refrigerator if we have just one planet. We don't have seven planets, we have one. So with that one, we want to make sure that it's possible for everybody to have a good life. And for everybody to have a good life, we need to have the things that help the good life be very long lasting. And with current technologies, it is possible to have products that will last 80, 90 years. When I was young, the refrigerator lasted 35 years. Now it lasts five. So yeah. something wrong happened because we have advanced a lot. <laughs> so the whole, the changes that have to happen are major. 
lifestyle changes, regulatory changes. So the government, to do that, all you have to do is you set up a new framework and that's it. And you're responsible. If you import something, you you take care of it. You, it's yours. And people will rent and you can make a lot of money. And in fact, it would be fantastic for the importers to be the ones who will make the producers compete. Because if it lasts longer, the importer makes more money. If it requires less maintenance, the importer makes more money. If people like the model better, the importer makes more money, the owner of the maintenance company. So the competition would be ferocious. So advances in those goods, wherever they're produced, would increase in every way. So that's one thing that governments could do. I mean, it's that big, the sorts of changes that have to happen. There is a business model funding the global south. That's also a change. Basic income, super important. The whole welfare system that we have is designed like a tailor-made suit for mass production. You have unemployment insurance. What's unemployment insurance? It is a system that's based on the conviction that people will have jobs for life. And every so often, they might be out of a job for a few months. So we pay them in the meantime so that they can continue paying their mortgage. They can continue paying the goods they bought on credit. Everybody was happy. You paid taxes. The taxes made sure that people would be able to have pensions and continue consuming, that they could have continuous payments, that they wouldn't stop and send you the key every time they lost their job because they lost their job infrequently and it was fine. And you had a payroll tax which is supposed to pay for somebody's pension, which is what's going to continue buying your things after the people are old, consuming then. But the payroll tax was at the same time a way of forcing business to increase productivity in order to reduce the cost of labor because the cost of labor plus the payroll tax and all that. But that was the idea. Productivity was increased by reducing labor and increasing whatever you were doing, including in the end of your robotics and so on. But basically, the whole system and the whole was made for mass production. Today, we have reduced the taxes on the rich. We practically don't protect the workers that lose their jobs. Jobs are lousy. There is no guarantee that there's going to be a proper pension at the end. There's nothing of what was there for the previous model is really capable of confronting what we now have. So what we need now is a very simple system, which is called universal basic income. Every single person receives an amount of money that is enough to eat, to have transport, and some minimum shelter. So everybody has that. So if the young want to innovate, they want to become singers or dancers or whatever, they can do it. They can get together. They can do all sorts of things. If women want to get divorced, they can get divorced because their husbands don't, cannot continue hitting them because they now have what to live on. 
if an old person is left without, they have enough to be able to continue having a decent, a reasonable life. Criminals, young people will not become criminals because they have enough money to wait until. You cannot get bad jobs paying very badly because people, because they're safe, they have a cushion, they don't have to accept, so jobs will become better. You can study every so often. You can stop and say, okay, I'm going to study. I'm going to increase my knowledge so that I can have a better job. And the most important is that it isn't going to cost a lot of money because what you do is that you give everybody that, but as soon as somebody starts earning a certain amount, they return a third in taxes, then a little more, another third, and another third. And the top, just get the money, take, turn it back get the money. They don't even see it, actually. The people who really earn the middle class and upper middle class doesn't even see the problem unless you've lost your job or something and then you keep it. And that's how the whole thing goes. Our babies, you can have a baby and you can work because you can pay with that somebody who will take care of your baby and so on and so forth. So, society would be infinitely safer. And how do you do it? You have no bureaucracy at all. Not a single person. Because what you need is just everybody to receive their money by artificial intelligence or by big data or whatever into their mobile phone or their card or whatever. And everybody's registered. And we've got to accept that everybody has to be registered. Information is going to be in the hands of government. We cannot avoid it. Of course, when Putin and, and the Chinese intervene and all that, well, we have a problem. But we've got to solve the problem as a problem. We can't just say, the oh, government cannot, they're going to have it. Well, they need it. And they better, you know, you have to have a law that says if government abuses that information, they go to jail. And that's... You know, you've got to recognize that this power that we now have should be used to make the lives of people safer, to make the possibility of building a future better, to guarantee that nobody goes hungry. Nobody should go hungry in an advanced country. And of course, I don't think developing countries could do it yet. I think this is a plan for advanced countries because even the whole idea that you pay taxes, you know, in developing countries, people don't pay taxes. So you can't do it so simply that you take the money back in taxes, then it would be horrendous. Anything you want to say about your latest book that you've now been working on for some time? My first book was about finance and technology. So it was basically about how the installation period happens and how the whole picture, the whole theory. But because I find that the importance of the role of the state is so crucial for people to understand, and especially because we are at the moment when the state should come back in, and we are at the sort of at the door of a possible global sustainable golden age, then I am looking at every technological revolution from the first one until now 
and seeing the role of the state in shaping technology. It's a big endeavor. It's bigger than me. It has taken me years. I'm working very hard. I am not a historian. It's like I wasn't an economist and I became an economist and I've become a historian. Because if you really want to do something, you work hard and I am working very hard. And that means that if I can, I'm hoping to finish this year and I'm hoping to show that a golden age is possible by looking at the past. I'm hoping to show what has to be done and how these technologies could actually what I was saying before about the development of the developing world as a condition for saving the advanced world from populism, that's one of the things I want to argue, and I want to argue it historically and with, with enough substance to what I'm saying. We're all very much looking forward to that book. Yeah. Cannot wait to read that. Cannot wait to finish it so you <laughs> can read it. <laughs> and I and I'm hoping I can put it online so that everybody can read it for nothing. With this, we'll move on to our outro section, Carlotta. These are set of five rapid fire questions. I'll start with the first question: What motivates you? <laughs> I think after this interview, you know what motivates me. <laughs> <laughs> Making a better world, helping, especially the young. It really, I really care. And I give, if I'm invited to something really big, to give some talk to some big people or to give some talk to some students, I find it very difficult not to accept the students instead of the big guys. Sometimes the big guys listen and they do nothing about it. But it's the young people that are going to change the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that a lot. Which non-consensus views do you hold near and dear? All of my views are non-consensus. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair. I, think, I think it's very difficult to find one in particular. I think everything I've told you is non-consensus. I'm dreaming of a consensus around them, but that's about it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what or who has had the most impact on your thinking, career, or life? I could say Schumpeter. I could even say Marx, because the first thing I ever read that made me think in this big way was the origin of the family, private property, and the state. The very first sort of Marxist book I read, you know, Latin Americans, we all read Marx, and we all got into these things. At that time, of course, in the 50s and 60s, what that did was to give me a big picture. Since then, I have. I disagree now with this idea that the forces of production define the relations of production. In my book, I'm showing how the forces of production, which is Fordism, work equally effectively for Stalin, Hitler, and the West. It didn't define the relations of production at all. But it does mean that you've got to take them into account, that in order to be able to get progress in whatever system, you've got to use those technologies in a way that brings you in the right direction, that gets the best out of it. So that's one influence. Another influence, Schumpeter. 
relatively minor in a way. I have so many things I disagree with. Well, I disagree with those both too. But the other one was Chris Freeman. Christopher Freeman, the one who came to Venezuela and convinced me to come and speak and who invited me, he ended up being my husband. We worked together for a while. He died 13 years ago now. I miss him enormously because an interlocutor that's powerful is one of the most difficult things to find. And he would have been, and I don't have him anymore. What are you currently reading? First of all, I want to tell you that I read or listen 24 hours a day because while I'm washing dishes or or making the food or whatever, I live alone, so I have to do everything myself. I listen to audiobooks or I use the readers, which, which are getting better and better of Word and of Microsoft Bing and all, whichever one will read to me. I don't care if it sounds like a machine. I don't care (laughs) because I get the context. I listen to audiobooks, as I said, and I read in Kindle. You know, I'm constantly reading and I am reading, of course, eight books about China. I have to read so much. Because not being a historian and discovering that historians are not big picture people. Historians tend to be, with very, very few exceptions, they take a little bit of reality and they study either a country or a region or an industry or a period. And I need all those things together. So yeah. I have to read seven things in order to get the idea of a particular topic. And sometimes I read seven things and I write one paragraph. And of course, I also use Wikipedia and now ChatGPT and everything, any source. So I am constantly reading literature. For years now, I've been writing or working or so on, and I practically cannot. I see movies every so often. I watch good movies if I can get them. But reading literature, I am horrified because I used to be fanatical. I used to read two, three books a month. Now I don't even read two, three a year. So it's my work. It's my work. It's my work. It's my work. And I read and read and listen and listen and read and listen and read and write. (laughs) That's great. That's great. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. For more information and latest updates, visit us at luminary.fm or follow us on Twitter at luminaryfm. Please subscribe to the podcast, pop us an iTunes review, and share with friends. Don't forget to check out the show notes. And a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this episode by the hosts and the participants are solely those in independent capacity and do not in any way represent the views from any organization, company or management they may be associated with. And thank you for listening.